0: So, scripture reading, this is where we're at. Today we get to an interesting text, and it is one that has been misused, uh, at times used to cause harm historically, uh, instead of healing and hope. So before we get there, I thought I'd offer just a few pastoral thoughts and invitations that might help as we come to this text this morning. The first is this. How we listen to sermons is as important as how the sermon is delivered. (laughs) Preachers put time and energy into praying, into preparing, into being faithful to exegete the text correctly and to apply it correctly to our lives. And we, as the listeners, we can open our hearts and ask God to speak by His Spirit through the text to us, And therefore, we come hungry. We don't come just as skeptics, which sometimes is good to say, God, ask the right questions. But we come hungry for the truth of God's word, and we listen with outstretched ears. Secondly, when we come to the text, we come with culturally informed ideas and images that are lenses through which we see and hear and interpret these texts. And they are most often not that helpful because they're not the lenses through which this text was given originally, which is why the preachers do their job of exegeting the text correctly and applying it correctly. And so I'm asking us to try to lay down the preconceived ideas that our culture brings and then say, God, what did you intend and how do you want to speak to me through this text as I find the true and original meaning and understanding of this text. And most texts that are like that often, like I've said, has, have, been caused, have caused harm to people in the past, have been used to oppress or abuse. And uh, I want to say this emphatically today, that God intends liberty and healing through His Word, truth to come through His Word. Exegetical process That brings us to wrestling with this text. What do I mean? As we follow the calendar of the year as pastors and leaders of this church, we try to say the church calendar goes through a certain rhythm, and so sometimes we preach topically, and sometimes we preach just systematic exegesis of a book or a text. Both are important, and right now we're going through the book of Peter, and it kind of wrestles us to the ground because we have to deal with what the text says, and we can't just go, nah. Let's skip that and go to the part about love. And so we get to this text, and we have to wrestle with it and say, God, what is it that you want to speak to us about? This is really important, and as the leaders of this church and as shepherds, we want to be faithful in exegeting the whole counsel of God, as Paul intended when he said that as well. And so I want you to give the text a chance today. I want you to open your heart to let the Spirit of God speak to you, Um, and uh, I want to say one last thing before we jump into it. If you have, if you find me reading this text and you, you, you kind of find your spirit like wounded or bucking against it just because it has been used to, uh, to in your personal experience, to oppress or harm or maybe silence or make you small, I want to say I'm really, really sorry. Because that's not what the text is intended to do. And so I'm going to pray for us before we jump in this and then we're going to see it. Father, we come to your word because we know You have given your word as a gift, and in this gift, you show yourself to us, the creator of the universe, the giver of life, giving himself to us. We're so grateful for that, God. We ask for your spirit. We open our hearts and minds and ears, and we want to be faithful to your word, and let it shape us and form us, not into... Our image that we have, not into the culture's image, but the image that you have for us to grow into. So we pray you come by your spirit and meet us this morning. Amen. All right, you ready? Here we go. Uh, 1 Peter 3. Wives, in the same way, submit uh, yourselves to your own husband. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over, without words, by the behavior of their wives. When they see the purity and reverence of your lives, your beauty should not come from outward adornments, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight, For this is the way the holy women of the past, who put their hope in God, used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner. And as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing." For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and His ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, everyone. Welcome to church on Halloween, scary passage, quite appropriate, you're welcome. I'm going to begin by apologizing for my own elaborate hairstyle. Two weeks in a row, folks, we've had some doozies. Um, you, you pick First Peter uh, for, for these passages of sort of towering beauty that speak uh, powerfully, deeply to our identity in Jesus and, and how to endure suffering in the world, and in a world where all of us face hardship, and, and there's uh, so much that's so resonant in this letter. But then you also, you also get this, um, you know, maybe another passage that makes you want to run and hide. Um, honestly, as David was giving the setup, I was like, what are they going to read? This is going to be terrible. Um, and I knew what he was going to read, and I was still like, this is going to be bad, um, but I, 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 David, I appreciate your, your heart and, and, and your words and the invitation to maybe let this surprise us a, a little bit. But yeah, this is a passage on its surface that makes me kind of want to run and hide um, or, or you know understand why someone would say, see, see, that's why the Bible is outdated, why it's irrelevant. Or, or see, this is, I knew, see, this is, the Bible is so utterly patriarchal and we can't take it seriously in a society that values equality. And those are understandable sort of uh, reactions to this text when you first hear, hear it read. So I'm going to ask you, as David just did, to take a breath um, into your mask and, uh, and, and hang with me for just a little bit. Um, even if you're certain that you don't want anything to do with a passage that calls for wives to submit to their husbands, um, I want to ask if you would just try and suspend your judgment or dismissal for a while, at least until we can get a contextual look at what Peter is trying to do here. Um, So we're at the the start of the third chapter of, of this letter. And we have these chapter divisions, but of course, the original letter wouldn't have had these chapter divisions. And so, we can do this thing—that's sort of a more modern thing—where we take, where we come to just chunks of this at a time, a- instead of uh, you know, every time we come to this part of the letter, we would have been in the flow of hearing the whole thing read in public, as it more than likely would have been received by its original hearers. So, um, again, we w- we wouldn't have had these chapter divisions. So, there's been a development of ideas going on in. In this letter. And now... Peter comes to this moment where he's going to say how all this identity that he's been speaking to, this identity in Christ and this um, sort of world-shaking grace and prophetic promises and gospel love that he's been um, describing is going to get worked out in our everyday relationships. And you see a pattern like this in a bunch of the New Testament letters where there's sort of an unpacking of the the beauty of the gospel, the, the extravagance of grace, our true identity, and then there's a practical working out of that, that grace, beauty, gospel, love, uh, Holy Spirit filling in the practical details of the community. So Peter's essentially saying, yes, it is right. It is good. It is true. It is beautiful. It is fine to say we have a new birth. That's how this letter begins. We have a new birth into a living, active, alive hope because we have a share in the resurrection of Jesus. He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is a foretaste of the human community that is to come, built by this gospel love. So new birth, living hope, share in the resurrection, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. But is all of that just idea? Is all of that just theory? Or does it come to bear in the messy details of our real lives? And the ups and downs of our most tested relationships, how does that identity bear out? So I think it's also important to remember that what prompted the writing of this letter was the profound suffering of those who were going to receive it. Many of them were experiencing great pain in their day-to-day life, in their society, for being identified with Jesus and this upstart sort of new sect of Judaism, which is how Christianity was originally seen. So without the the context of the letter itself, the people receiving it, they knew they were living in a broken world. Everything is not as it should be. And so Peter is saying into that context, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget that you are united to Jesus. Don't forget that you are being built into a spiritual house. Don't forget that you are chosen, known, loved, that you are an aspect of of the divine happiness. You play a part in God having joy. Do you think about that? Don't forget that you are a priesthood of believers, that you minister and mediate the presence of God to one another. You you listen, you intercede, you speak mercy, you speak truth, you receive, embrace one another. That's, That's your role in this spiritual house. You're becoming a people who are delighted in by God and delight to show what God is really like in the world. He's been saying when you're suffering, and all of us suffer, the world is broken. It's not as it should be. When you're suffering, some of the primary things that you need is to remember who you are. You need a way to get some perspective on your pain. And you need to know that whatever moment you're in is not the end of the story. And now Peter is saying, okay, now let's pull that beauty down into the crevices of, of everyday life. What about your work? What about your city? What about your commute and your boss? And uh, you know, what, what about your spouse and your friends? And I think Peter is saying, look, our home reveals our heart. Here, here's sort of the contours of where we're going to go this morning. Our home reveals our heart. That's that's one of the first things Peter's saying here. The second is there is a Jesus way in all of our relationships. All this identity beauty gospel grace power love acceptance is is there's there's a way that that works out in every type of relationship in human society with your spouse with your enemy with your child with with your coworker there is a Jesus way in our relationships in all of our relationships and the last is keep in mind ultimately it's not our decision about someone else that's final God is the one who makes the final decision about about a human life, about a person, about a society, about a situation. God is the only one, and and really, thank goodness for this. God is the only one truly equipped to judge. And I'm so grateful that the one who says, you you can count on me to sort out the world, to sort out what's truly right, to make the world right. That same God went to the cross on our behalf. If you want to know how commit. thank you. If you want to know how committed that God is to our good and to making it through judgment, you look at the cross. Home reveals our hearts. There is a Jesus way in all our relationships and God is the one who will judge. So let's see if we can hear Peter saying this to us across all this time and space, across these different contextual realities. As you all know, it's Halloween and that means something. That means we are about to enter the Mariah Carey portion of this year. And we are going to hear her, in a variety of settings, sing her Christmas list again. And I'm not fighting this at all. Mariah is incredible. I mean, let's let's admit it. And let me tell you, her Christmas list is remarkably simple. All she wants for Christmas is you, baby. Okay, Uh uh-huh. Right, certain songs become so familiar to us that we—if that came on, every single one of you could probably finish, finish the words. Right, many Christmas songs end up in this category because we have a whole whole season for them. It's why it's why we make up rules. Like you can't start until Halloween. You can't start until the third leg of the turkey has been eaten on, on Thanksgiving. You must not begin Christmas songs until after this point. Because we know we're going to hear them so so much, we're going to live with them for a while. It's why Christmas songs are ripe for parody. Um, it's why my kids, you know, every single one of them, without being forced, no formation went into this. And at some point, each of them came home and they sang to me "Jingle Bells." Batman spells "Robin laid an egg," and this works because I know the melody. I know what it's supposed to say, and they're changing it, changing the words. So by the time Batmobile loses its wheel and Joker gets away, I'm on board, I'm tracking. Taking a familiar song and changing the words of it. Empire had conquered the world through its military might, absolutely, but, but following close behind was a conquering culturally, ideologically, philosophically that came along with Rome, Rome's military dominance was sort of an, a... a A flattening out of the world's culture according to their social norms. They worked to impose Greco-Roman culture on the world, and that meant their philosophers and thinkers of the empire would essentially try to address the Roman way across all of our society, across all of their society. So when you and I find ourselves bristling against what Peter is saying here or, or bristling against what Paul's words in the New Testament and how they strike our modern ears... we we have to remember they were arriving written in a specific context, a a context in many ways that was like a song that everyone knew the words to. So we need to see the places. When are they upholding the familiar song and when are they differing from the familiar song? Because where they're differing from the familiar song is going to communicate a lot about their intention and their meaning as they they lift these uh, instructions up. Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, uh, all of whom are celebrated in in our society as as these sort of like foundational philosophers. Plutarch all wrote extensively or referenced household codes in their writings. Basically, what's the Roman or the Greco-Roman way of living in the, the foundational building blocks of society? The ways a man, a woman, a child, a servant should be in the home. And there's great historical evidence uh, that any uh, new faith or religion or way of life that was entering the empire would be addressed, would be evaluated uh, based on how it interacted with these codes. And um, these codes were seen as essential for maintaining the social order. There was an Egyptian cult, uh, uh, Egyptian cult ISIS, uh, different than the one we're familiar with in our time, but the Egyptian cult ISIS uh, Particularly encountered strong, even violent resistance for asserting that a woman could hold authority over her, over her husband. This is the world Peter and Paul were writing into, and into these communities who were already experiencing persecution. And I hear that I'm like, okay, okay, I see what you're trying to do, pal, with your microphone, and you're making it easier to hear. But I kind of want to say, listen, you're already in trouble. Why not go all the way? You know, Why not explain the relationships of the household in a way that sounds immediately nice to me as a person in Brooklyn in 2021? But that's not what's happening here. It does make us bristle. It does make us say, hang on, wait, wait what does this mean? Submission, I'm, I'm, I want to distance myself. But I want to say, when you come to see what Peter mentions, what he leaves out, whom he addresses and in what order, you're actually gonna see that he's subverting many of the cultural norms. He's changing the lyrics of a very familiar song in what I think is a pretty clever way if you're gonna have a public document and you don't want your movement to be utterly militarily obliterated. You need to subvert, not just violently overthrow and not just disappear into the demands of the culture. It's a it's a pretty uh, clever way of love that Peter is is lifting up here, and it's rooted in Christ's example. He continually saying, "Don't forget, Christ is our example. Christ is our way. The way Jesus lived is the way we're going to live." So he's advocating something other than a direct overthrow of the sort of social norms, but he's not assimilating either. One thing Peter does know, and I think this is something for all of us to consider, is that we will um, find out a lot about ourselves in our most everyday relationships. The places that we're the most comfortable, the places where we're the most unguarded, the relationships in which we spend the most time are going to say a lot about who we are. It's going to speak to How we truly see our identity lived out in the practical details of our life. So home reveals the heart. It's a painful reality. Something obviously really intense has happened over the last two years. Um, Many of us started living every single day with people in our homes (laughs) again. (laughs) Um in a way that we hadn't before, hadn't in quite, quite a long time. And, and the pandemic, in so many ways, it may have taught us what we love and appreciate, uh, but in many other ways, it also drove us up the wall. And we're, we're right next to these people. And, and my guess is that, and, and, and I say this with grief in my heart, my guess is that you know someone, I know, I know several, whose marriages have taken a serious hit in the pandemic. Maybe their marriages are ending or over. And maybe this is even true for you. There's 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 so much pain around this reality. I I think you'll see examples where you know people maybe, maybe they 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 were tested and they thrived and they found new ways to communicate and new ways to express grace to one another, but others found people that they had found ways to avoid in normal life, and now they're confronted with them daily, and it was a mess. a harsh reality that needs a ton of grace is that our home will eventually show what is really in our hearts that of course doesn't have to be the end because the gospel powerfully says when we when we find brokenness in our in our hearts We can still be accepted by a God who has gone to the cross on our behalf. We can still be forgiven. And from that place of forgiveness, we can bend grace to one another. We can begin to change. We can begin to find new ways. But home does reveal the heart. And so Peter is speaking to these familiar home relationships when he says this. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from, the out, from outward adornment such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. Maybe you were like, Could, wasn't it once enough? We already read that, pal. Why'd you come back to that? And what David said is so right. So many, so many of us have experienced pain because of these types of passages. I just want to acknowledge that might be in the room. One, uh, someone in our staff meeting was saying, I prayed for aspects of this, this passage to be true about me, even when I, when I didn't feel like, feel like they were ever going to be. And it just caused sort of an agony in my spirit to wrestle with inside. And so I want to acknowledge that, that that can very well be present. But a couple of things I want you to note. One is that the wife is ad- addressed directly, and that's really important contextually. The wife is direct, uh, uh, directly addressed instead of the expectation that she would get her instructions through her husband. Uh, the, the New Testament continually does this thing where it speaks to the person on the underside of power and gives them dignity and, and autonomy and, and choice in their in their particular role. Also, she is addressed before the husband, which is which is important as well. She's also addressed as a follower of Jesus. And the words right before we get into these instructions about the home is that we are to go to Jesus, the Shepherd and Overseer of our soul. And so, remember, the original letter wouldn't have the chapter divisions and so flowing right out of the idea that Jesus is the shepherd and overseer of our souls ultimately that the God of the universe is taking particular care and intentional love over this person's life come these instructions this is a woman whom Jesus is looking after with great love and care And her allegiance is not primarily to her husband's household gods as the custom would have been. Now, this is so far into us and you're like, my husband's household gods, whatever. But the Greek philosopher Plutarch, very popular at this time, informing how these household relationships were described in their normal way. He said this. You have a problem with Paul? Look out for Plutarch. I'm just saying. Aristotle. These guys. Come on. A wife. Ought not to make friends of her own, but to enjoy her husband's friends in common with him. The gods are the first and foremost, are, are the first and most important friends. Wherefore, it is becoming for a wife to worship and know only the gods that her husband believes in, and to shut the door tight upon all queer rituals and outlandish superstitions. A, wo- a woman in, in this particular culture was expected to take the belief system that her husband was already living in. And so if you begin to see this sub- subversive way that Peter is asserting, he's not saying that, he, that her, ele- her allegiance should be to his household gods. He's saying, in fact, there's a way that you can live that's so compelling, that's so you know, sort of countercultural, that begins to win the heart of your husband to the true God. Peter is saying there's a way, even in the difficulty of this moment where you can live a countercultural kingdom way and win over the heart of your unbelieving husband to the true God. It's quite a different thing than the normal Greco-Roman household code. So this hope is stated that she would be able to uh, live in a way that her husband's heart is drawn to Christ. And as this is a couple of just sort of contextual details that I found really helpful. As the church grew in its early decades, there was an increase of Christian women in the Roman Empire. They were one of the fastest growing populations in the Roman Empire. And one of the reasons was Christian families did not participate in the pagan uh, practice of exposing or discarding a second daughter. Often when a Roman family had a daughter and they already had one, they would leave the child out and just not take it exposing the child to to death and, and discarding them. It's horrific, it's barbaric, it's something that, that we don't even really want to think about. But what you began to get is, is Christian families with multiple believing daughters and, and marriage partners that are entering into these relationships with people that do not believe the same way they do. And so... Peter says, listen, this is a a real situation and instructions need to be given. What are we supposed to do? If a Christian woman finds herself in a marriage with an unbeliever, how is she supposed to live? Should it be outright revolt against what the culture expected and go her own way? Or should she disappear into her husband's expectations and the cultural's norm? Peter gives us another way. He, he, He sings a familiar song, but he changes the lyrics in a key place. And it gets our attention that something different is being done here. And just so you don't think I'm making this up, uh, I want to point you to Karen Jobes, who has one of the most helpful scholarly works on, uh, on, on this letter of 1 Peter. And she says this, While some modern interpreters consider the New Testament's household codes to be hopelessly chauvinistic, They fail to read the codes against their contemporary literature, which shows that the New Testament writers were actually subverted cultural expectations by elevating the slave and the wife with unparalleled dignity. Peter is saying something unique. Peter is saying something different. This is, I want to say, this is very helpful for me. When I come across a a Bible passage, it makes me want, want to run and hide. And I'm like, this It's very difficult to square with with Jesus going to the cross on my behalf or filling us with the Holy Spirit or or, or wild, outlandish forgiveness. And so someone like Job, skillfully working through um, the the, the scholarship around an idea like this, I think is so helpful. And coming to the reality that, that Peter is saying something different than the message of his culture. You have a new birth into a living hope a share in the resurrection of Jesus, an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. This is that to every person reading this letter. But also how you live at home is going to really matter. What defines your identity and gives you value in the world is going to really matter. We aren't starting a revolution by direct assault, against the norms of our society, but by subversive love. We are following the way of Jesus. And I want to tell you this. Everyone who learns the way of Jesus learns submission. This is... um, a few short lines in a letter responding to a particular you know, experience of those who would be receiving this letter in that cultural context, but when you see the New Testament speak in other sections specifically about Christian marriage and how it's related to Christ in the church, there's no way to avoid the reality of mutual submission, that everyone is meant to love in the way Jesus loves, and that means laying down your life for one another. We are following the way of Jesus and everyone in the way of Jesus learns submission. And Peter certainly isn't saying, listen, the husband is always right. Even if you look at just the example he gives of Abraham and Sarah. The Bible is is notorious for showing us the the foibles, the the failures, the, the, the ridiculous choices of its heroes, the ways they absolutely dropped the ball. Abraham made some wildly bad choices along the way, and Sarah had to plot her own journey of faith, and yet they found a way to do this together. I'll give you Job's two more times, and here's one. Karen Job's hero. When read within its original historical setting, these verses become a call to social transformation within the Christian community, allowing it to become an alternative society based on God's redemptive plan. The Christian's willingness to suffer unjustly out of reverence for God in order to follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ is a radical break with social expectations of that day, just as it is on our own day Here's something that came crashing into my heart as I was looking at this this, this week. Um, do you remember the incident where Jesus turns over the tables? You guys remember that story? Uh, it, it's, it's recounted several times in the Gospels. There's two moments of it in John's Gospel which something being repeated, a story like that being repeated seems to mean that there was a lot of emphasis that needed to be given to it. So what is that story about? Jesus comes into the temple, this is a summary, but Jesus comes into the temple and finds that power dynamics have been exploited in such a way that abuse and exclusion have become the norm in a place that is meant to be a house of prayer for all nations. So in case you're not familiar with the story where Jesus flips over the table and makes a whip of cords and drives out the money changers, go back and read it sometime this afternoon. But a summary is he comes in to his father's house and says this is supposed to be a place of prayer for all nations, but the power dynamics were were being exploited in such a way that abuse and exclusion were taking place. And Jesus literally flips. I I sometimes, one of my like, wildest moments to imagine is Jesus taking the time to make a whip of cords. Like is he totally losing his temper or is he like deliberately making a whip of cords? He's flipping over tables. How long did this cord take to make? I don't know. These are details that Karen Jobes could help us with. Peter witnessed that. He witnessed that moment where where Jesus cleanses and purifies the temple from these power dynamics being used to abuse and exclude. And now Peter's writing this letter inspired by the Holy Spirit. And what has Peter done in this letter already? This is really important. He has gone to great lengths to show the community receiving this letter. And thereby, in extension, you and I receiving this letter that we are actually the temple. He has gone to great lengths to show that we are living stones built into a spiritual house, serving together in that spiritual house as a priesthood of all believers, chosen, known, and loved by God. These are not isolated sections of this letter. And so when we get to this, is it going to be all of a sudden that after saying you are the very temple where people can see what God is like and come and celebrate the presence of God and come and see his freedom and his his love and salvation, now out of nowhere, I want you to use power dynamics that are the norms of your culture to abuse and exclude. I don't think so. That's what causes Jesus to flip tables over. This is what causes Jesus very often to confront the church is when we allow uh, power dynamics to be used in such a way that we abuse and exclude. And the church is having a reckoning in our day around these very subjects. We haven't learned to love in the way of Jesus and we are paying for it. Because we have bought into our culture's norms of sort of like a business-minded, you know, like hyper-capitalistic vision of church where we've made it a product and a marketing scheme. Instead of a way of discipleship that always goes down before it goes up. That always moves into humility as a crucial part of love. In fact, when Peter gets to address the husband, second in the list, he says, if you use your physical strength or your place of authority in society to mistreat your wife, your prayers will not be heard. Now, we already heard how, we already know from the Jesus story how important it is to Christ that in his temple, It'd be a house of prayer for all nations that everyone be welcome to interact with Yahweh. And Peter says to the husbands, do not miss this. If you use your physical strength, if you use your place of authority that the society has granted you to mistreat or abuse your wife, your prayers will not be heard. Instead, his message is, It's not an outright assault. Maybe we want one. Maybe we want an outright assault on that culture. Maybe we want an outright assault on ours. It feels nice to use anger to control, the threat of violence to demand. Instead, he says, listen, there's a way that you can live. There's a way a believing wife could live that would win the heart of her husband. Day in and day out, he would see the beauty of Christ shining through. There's a way that she could live that show her, shows her true identity was rooted in Jesus, not in her clothes, not in the accessories that she could afford. This, the, the, the beauty of, of the identity we have in Christ is not going to be rooted in, in the ways you're able to distinguish yourselves from, from, from one another because of your wealth. Of course that wouldn't be the case. And he's, he's also showing how a husband who was gentle and collaborative could show that their lives were rooted in a new source than just the culture around them. It's actually beautiful. As resistant as we may be to its surface reading, I think Karen Jobs is the last time I'm going to use her today. I think she sums this up well. Christian marriage is understood as a lifelong commitment in an exclusive, one-flesh union that mirrors the profound mystery of Christ in the church. All right? This is this is something we see over and over again, most uh, you know, described probably in, in Ephesians. On this model of Christ's love for his church and the church's submission to Christ, marital love is understood to be the resolve to live one's entire life totally committed to the well-being of one's spouse in every decision. When submission of the wife becomes the central issue, the image of Christian marriage has already been distorted. Essentially, home reveals the heart. And if you're looking for a way to force your spouse's will to your will and have God sign off on it, you've already missed the plot. You've already gone off in some way. You need to begin at the place of personal confession and repentance. Return to Christ. Return to your true identity. Return to your new birth, living hope. Share in the resurrection, inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. Get things right in your heart with God. You're like, you spent a lot of time on Home Reveals the Heart. What about the other two? Great question. We're going to get to them, and they're going to be so much shorter. Okay? The whole section is showing us that there is a Jesus way in all of our relationships. And Peter gives us something of a summary. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On, on the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. There is a Jesus way to live in all of your relationships. And it is going to look wildly different than the rest of the world. The, the, the world says when someone harms you, you do everything you can to get them back as quickly as possible and probably over and above what they did to you. That's the way of strength. Jesus is showing us an alternative way. It's this way of love. As I was reading this, I was like, this is a short version of what Philippians 2 gives us about the mind of Christ forming the community of Jesus to live the way of Jesus. I'm gonna give it to you because it's so beautiful and poetic and I think it moves our hearts in the right direction as we prepare to close Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, this is our inheritance, church. If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. No matter where you come from on the social, economic, racial spectrum of society, this is written to all of us united in Jesus. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself. This is the Jesus way. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. So it is offensive, just not in the way we first thought. It's offensive to all of us to let go of our own way. How on earth was Jesus able to walk in this way? So often I just want to be like, oh, he was God. Super easy. The reality of the narrative of his life is that he lived these 30 years in obscurity, and then he went and was filled with the Spirit, the same Spirit that fills you and I, and he lived this Jesus way. Yes, he didn't have sin to contend with because he didn't sin, and that's massively important, but the Jesus way is open and available to us. So how did Jesus walk this way in his relationships, in his time on earth? Even when those relationships weren't going to be reciprocal, they were going to take advantage, they were going to hurt, they were even going to kill him. He utterly trusted that his identity, his pain, and his future We're in the Father's hands. This is such a key for us, church. We have to know... We have to practice knowing. We have to pray to help ourselves knowing. We have to sing ourselves into knowing. We have to small group ourselves into knowing. We have to give away our stuff into knowing. We have to work for justice into knowing that our identity, our pain, and our future is in the Father's hands. He is the one that is going to secure our lot. He is the one that is going to define our reality. He is the one that holds our promise. And if you want to know how far He's willing to go to secure those promises, we look to Jesus on the cross that's how loved you are think about this jesus says i can serve i can suffer i can miss being exalted can we say that along with jesus because my father loves me I will never miss that love, and he is the one who holds my future. He is the one who's going to exalt exalt me. And so we see it lived out in Jesus' life. He, from the throne of heaven, the place of glory, makes himself nothing, becomes a servant, goes all the way down in obedience to the point of death, and then the Father exalts him, gives him his true name, the name that is above every name. The same story is for us as well, that we entrust our identity, our pain, and our future into the Father's hands gazing at his extravagant love. The New Testament in another place says that we would know this love, it's beyond knowing, but somehow we would know it, that it is long and high and deep and wide and is beyond what you would ask or imagine, church. That's what we are swimming in. And that's how we can have mutual submission in our relationships. That's how we can exalt the other, our loved one that we're annoyed with, and even, we could say, even our enemy in the Jesus way. Peter had seen this lived out in Jesus. He saw it up close and personal. And so he says to this scattered church that's in agony. Listen. You have a new birth into a living hope. You have a share in the resurrection of Jesus. You have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. So you can be like-minded. You can be sympathetic. You can love one another. Be compassionate and humble. You can even not repay evil for evil or insult for insult. Uh, on the contrary, you can repay. You could. You could possibly. This seems in, like literally. This feels impossible. But that you could repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. Basically. So that God will lift up your name, give you your true name, and exalt you to your rightful place in his kingdom. The subversive love of the way of Jesus in the New Testament is not trample over me, push over weakness. You remember when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus? (laughs) Like, uh, are you Jesus? And he's like, I am, and they fall over. And then he's like, okay, now you guys can get up and arrest me. Like he's not a pushover. He knows who holds his identity, who holds his pain, and who holds his future. And so he went with them. And so into the broken world that this context and our context knows so familiar, so so well. There's this startling invitation to love in the Jesus way in a broken world. Peter was calling for a revolution. But not a a once-in-a-generation revolution of violent overthrow, and not the trample-underfoot weakness of being consumed in the surrounding culture, so so there's no difference, but an alternative way of love rooted in Jesus. An alternative way of love rooted in Jesus. Church, you are not going to be able to do this on your own. (laughs) Please don't try. Willpower is a diminishing resource on the daily. You need to get yourself every day, into the place where you're receiving your true identity from the Father, the, the way Jesus did. This is my beloved son, my beloved daughter, in whom I'm well pleased. We need to receive that. We need to be every day in the Gospels, being formed by the way of Jesus, so that we have a chance in the, in the discernment, in the real details of our everyday, normal relationships with people who are driving us crazy to live the Jesus way, to live this, this life of mutual submission, to entrust Christ, the Father, With with, with our identity, with our pain, with our future. And then ultimately there's this final reminder that God is the judge. That God is the one who ultimately makes the final decision on someone's life, on a society, on a situation. Peter gives us a quote from Psalm 34. This is truly the last thing we're hitting. (laughs) To me it's such a powerful thing because right the Hebrew scriptures as we have them in the Old Testament would have been Peter's Bible. It would have been Jesus' Bible. And so when they use these timely little, you know, like uh, quotes from the from the Hebrew scriptures, from the Psalms or from the prophets in a way that specifically ties in to the, the context and the situation that people are facing, it's such a gift. It is such a gift to give the timely word of God in the exact right moment. It's one of the invitations of being the priesthood of all believers is that you are so saturated in the st- story and life and word of God that you begin to become someone who can speak the timely word of love mercy life and see good days where do I find myself on this social spectrum where do I find on the the upside or underside of power how do I live what do I do And, and how does this crash into my heart whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech they must turn from evil and do good they must seek peace and pursue it For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. Remember what he already said about prayer if you you abuse and exploit. (laughs) The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you think this passage should be used to liberate people, to abuse and exploit one another, or to to use power dynamics to dominate, you absolutely haven't read it (laughs) in the way it was intended. Instead, Peter quotes Psalm 34 to root their hope and to root their confidence in God. Hope in a God that sees them, hope in a God that makes promises, and confidence in a God who will sort out the world, who will sort out our story and the world's story. Specifically applying the balm of the word of God to a situation that was fraught with tension, it speaks right to where we are. So here's my question as we close. Home reveals the heart. What's showing up in yours? What does your heart look like expressed in your actions in your most comfortable relationships? When no one else sees, when there is no Instagram camera, when no one's there to know how you're, like how are you using anger to control? How are you using manipulation? How are you using this silent treatment, right? Let's just honestly ask, what is the home? What is our most uh, normal, regular, comfortable relationship saying about our hearts? And if it's something we're not, we don't love, let's bring our hearts to Jesus this morning. That's the invitation. The second is, is there's a Jesus way in all of your relationships, and ask the Holy Spirit to give you discernment. Am I walking in this Jesus way in my relationships, and if I'm not, let me begin the work of personal confession and repentance, because God is a judge, and, and there's 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 good news to that. There's really good news that God is a judge. It means that evil is not going to be ignored. Injustice is not going to prevail or have the last word. We need God to be the judge. He's the only one equipped for it. But it was also bad news. What about the evil I find in me? And the answer to that is the cross. That on the cross, God is both holy and judge and merciful and savior. So we run to Jesus. Surprise, surprise. He is our savior. And he is also our way of life. So church, we're going we're to pray, we're going to come to the communion, uh, the, the bread and the cup in just, just a moment. We're going to prepare our hearts for that, but I want to ask you, invite the Holy Spirit to search your heart. What does your heart look like in, in your most comfortable relationships? What is the way of Jesus looks like in your, in your sphere of relationships? Are we living this Jesus way? And if not, let's bring our hearts to Christ. Let's bring our hearts before our loving Father, before our Savior and our way. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, what I'm about to say, God, is true at all parts of our life in all parts of this service, but right now we become particularly aware that we can't do what we need you to do. And that is to speak to us in the secret place of our minds. Speak to us in the secret place of our hearts. Expose the things that we need to name and turn from. Embrace us with your rescuing, saving love today. Nourish us with your life and word. I pray as we come to communion, God, that you would nourish your church by the bread and the cup. Nourish your church by a covenant of grace, not performance. May we be quick to repent because we know we are running headlong into your love where we will be embraced. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill this place in Jesus' name. Amen. Church. We're going to go right into the meal today. So here's what we'll do. We're we're going to prepare our hearts and receive the meal. And then as we stand if the Holy Spirit's prompted you in any way. We have these rugs up here. They're not super special spiritual places, but sometimes moving and changing your posture is a way to show God, hey, I'm coming. I wanna wanna be obedient to you. Uh, uh, So many of the words of prayer and worship in the Hebrew scriptures have a posture associated. Sometimes walking, lifting your hands, kneeling. Sometimes those help. Also being with one another helps massively. So we have people that would love to pray with you if you wanna pray over anything at all. So we're going to receive this meal. If you don't have the elements, you can slip your hand up and uh, someone will bring them to you. I see a few hands out there. That's where we're headed. We're going to receive this meal. We're going to sing. I invite you to pray. I invite you to listen and follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit this morning.